So, listeners, we're a little late with the podcast this week because we've just been contemplating the hugeness of the music we've been listening to, and we finally think we've got it down. Is that right, Russ? Yeah, you could say that. Yeah, kind of. (laughs) (laughs) We're usually on time, but, uh, you know, once in a while something comes up and throws things off schedule, but we weren't going to skip an episode, so we... Yeah, we uh, would never do that. Just got it out as soon as we could anyway, and we're here with episode 112. Yeah, and thanks for listening. Thanks for being patient, everybody, for this week's uh, release. You're listening to Adult Music, mm-hmm. podcast with music for the mature mind, bringing right. you new classical and jazz releases every week. We've got some interesting ones tonight. I think we're going to have uh, theater kind of music. And then classical, we got a lot of music for the theater, for the, well, let's say theater and cinema uh, composers, but they're not necessarily all music for the theater and cinema, right. but we'll, we'll get to that. And in jazz, we're going to feature drummers who are also composers too, not just guys who keep time, but they write the tunes as well. So we've got that to uh, look forward to as well. And for all the music that we're going to discuss this week, you can find links to Spotify and Apple Music there in the description below. And you also see the full episode playlist, and that's all the music in one place on Deezer. That's our favorite CD quality streaming platform from France. You can also get the podcast there. Just look us up, username Adult Music Podcast. You can get all the music and the podcast in one place. And wherever you listen to us, if you don't see the full description or the links are not active, you can always come over to our host site, which is Podbean, P-O-D-B-E, an.com everything's easy to follow and all the links are easy to activate from there if you enjoy the podcast please do follow or subscribe wherever you listen to us and tell a friend if you've got any music-minded friends people who are like to get into jazz and classical find the best new recordings we'd love to get new listeners by word of mouth and if you also take a moment just give us a ranking or write a short review that helps us get listed in the recommendations under the music categories and that's another way we can grow our audience please also come over check us out on facebook we got a page there you can get extra info new releases throughout the week you can leave a message or comment there as well and if you want to ask us anything directly by email comments or other feedback we'd love to hear from you there as well our email address is adult music podcast that's all one word at gmail.com and we've got a few other podcasts we're teamed up with sharing music-minded listeners so we'd like to recommend them to you you can find the links down below in the description as well as little promos at the end of the broadcast if you stick on to the end We've got Tom Galker's Something Came from Baltimore. It's a jazz, blues, and R&B interview podcast. A lot of well-known musicians and focused themes in every episode there. Famous interviews in neon jazz from Joe Domino. He interviews artists, musicians, and writers. And we've got Same Difference, Two Jazz Fans, One Jazz Standard. Two guys who look at several versions of the same jazz standard each week and they play snippets from each version. Then they discuss the history of the original and the different versions. It can up your jazz knowledge and uh, standard recognition by checking out that podcast too. So as I said, you'll find the links below and little promos at the end. Well, and this week, Mike, unfortunately... Yeah. We've got Debbie, uh, death in the music world, a big, and name. A big yeah, a really important one too. So let's hear the theme. Here it is. And 
this time it's for Ahmad Jamal, who passed away April 16th of this year, age 92. Yeah, 92. And I want to say one of my favorite jazz uh, pianists, in fact. I'm kind of, so I'm really, especially in these later years, I've really gotten into him and I'm really sorry to hear about this. Yeah. Well, he was born Frederick Russell Jones in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, July 2nd, 1930. And he started playing piano at the age of three. I guess he wow. was playing with his uncle who kind of uh, asked him to play what he was doing on the piano. Then he started taking formal lessons at the age of seven. And he had a really long recording career starting in 1951 and all the way up to 2019. So he covered from, you know, bebop and then beyond in all the styles. But in, you know, in the bebop age, the kind of rage was to play lots of fast and complex things. And that really wasn't Ahmad Jamal's style. Overall, he was noted for his sense of space and mm -hmm. really keen ballad playing, I think, is what you know most people liked about his playing. And he recorded mainly with his trio in the 50s and 60s, but later on, more in quartets and quintets and other formats, you can find his recordings. So I know you had said you had his last two recordings too. What was it? Marseille, Marseille and, and, ballads. and Ballads. And I think right. they were both um, recorded at the same set of sessions. And I was rather, mm -hmm. uh, it, it was kind of, now that he now that he's, um, he's passed away, it's kind of moving to think that um, this, his penultimate album was called Marseille because he had mentioned in the notes that album that Marseille in France was a city that was really important to him throughout his life. So uh, he went there mm -hmm. often, had a lot of friends there and he uh, wrote a composition you know, for the city too. And on that album, you can hear it um, sung in, it's, it's in French. And then there's a, a rapper does it in French as well. Oh. So, and I think he also has an instrumental version of it. You hear it three times. I think I have a copy of that too. I haven't listened I like to the it record. In a while, it's good. Mm. Anyway, rest in peace, Ahmad Jamal. Your music will not be forgotten. Right. So Horace Silver went first and now finally Ahmad Jamal joins him because they were friends. I remember Horace Silver died many years ago yeah, now, yeah. but uh, they were close. And Ahmad Jamal used to play a lot of um, Horace Silver's compositions after, you know, in, at his uh, concerts hmm. in later years. All right. So are we off uh, and running here on the, uh, the classical end here? Shall I uh, introduce uh, this first album? Yeah. Let's uh, see what we've got going in this kind of theatrical small orchestral kind of thing. Yeah, week. now theatrical is also going to mean uh, in classical music is going to mean yeah you know, orchestral, so like big sounds, and we're going to get that a lot on all three of these albums. But uh, I think especially on this one, um, La Nuit de Paris, uh, dance music from Folie Bergère to opera, and this is a recording by Les Siècles, uh, conducted by Francois Xavier Roth. They've had so many great recordings, and this one was. Um, getting good reviews so i had to hear this one too this is um rather unusually on the bruzane label uh, roth mm -hmm. usually records for um who does he record for i can't even remember anyway <laughs> the harmonia mundi that's who it is they they're on the harmonia mundi label all right so when you think um that title folie bergere it just brings back a movie that i saw by uh, jean renoir it's a 1950s movie called french can can uh with jean gabin and uh if you want to kind of Put yourself in that uh, in the sound world of some of the uh, works on this album. Yeah. It's a really good movie to see. It's really charming and very much of its period. It's really nice. There's a lot of really nice things in it. It's in color as well. So you get a lot of that uh, Folie Bergère kind there's of feel. There's some can-can on here for sure. Yeah, there's can-can there's here. There's, <laughs> there's, there are a lot of waltzes on this album. Right. 
Now, just as an introduction, I just want to say there was a saying in the 18th century. So let's put our minds back into the 18th century, the 1700s, that is, that the Italians sing, the Germans pray, and the French dance. And hmm. uh, if you know your French opera, the French, um, there's always like a ballet section in it. And if you know your um, Verdi operas, whenever he... Um, made a French version of one of his operas, uh, would, he would insert a ballet section in it that wasn't in the Italian version <laughs> because the French had to have their dance suite right. in the uh, theater whenever they went out. They were really particular about that. They've always loved choreography, and that's really true to this day. If we think about even the uh, the ballet russe, you know, where they went at the early 20th century, they went to Paris, and mm -hmm. uh, that's where Stravinsky's great ballets were all premiered and to this day like all the best choreographers are they're all over europe and america really the united states but um most of them are french it seems right. like they because they're just so keyed into dance mm. i seem to um you know find about out a lot about uh, french choreographers okay hit tunes from operas were often turned into waltzes or quadrilles it's sort of the way that uh if you listen to early 20th century jazz you would often hear um say classical themes like done to a swing rhythm so it's they, they'd kind of popularize a lot of these tunes well back in the 18th century they were turned into waltzes and a quadrille is sort of like a it's almost like a mini dance suite in a single movement where you get mm -hmm. all these different sort of uh dances to a single melody ballet music was ideal to fill out symphony concerts so if you needed another piece they would just insert a little ballet suite in there and the music of a ballet, think about something like Swan Lake by Tchaikovsky, was often reduced to 20-minute orchestral suites that could be played in the, um, the concert hall. Right? Right. Therefore, we wound up with the unusual phenomenon of dance music that was to be listened to while sitting down. <laughs> so, you know, rock music, okay, was uh, started out uh, being danced to, and then people just stood in front of the stage and stared at the band by the 1960s. Yeah. Uh, music really is an odd thing. It's pretty fascinating, really. By the way, the the Bruzane label, um, if you buy any physical copy of, they've done a lot of um, obscure operas. They're bringing a lot of things out of the uh, the woodwork. And uh, they do these lavish productions on their um booklets sometimes mm. in this particular case it's the it's a regular cd size but the operas are almost like a, a big book with many pages and they even have these little tassel bookmarks in them oh. they're really really nice so they're well worth um buying if you're interested in what they're doing that's they're fantastic productions all right let's go through this now i really wanted to hear this mostly because of the uh, la siècle uh, orchestra because i like what they do generally and the way they sound they play with um period instruments now of course this isn't so old it, well, it is right. but it's not baroque music old it's um it's over 100 years old so we're still using i think gut strings here but it's kind of a smaller sound than the bright shiny modern orchestra would um use and i think the key to this is like you got popular music folie bergere the can can things like that and then ballet suites which would be kind of like the higher say class of uh, music it would have a little more artiness to it mm -hmm. You can generally, it's really funny. All this music is um, now old to us. We don't really listen to waltzes anymore unless we go to the uh, New Year's concert in Vienna, <laughs> which I really want to complain about. Well, it's a great it's a great thing. But the problem I have with it is that it's broadcast every year. And a lot of people think that's classical music. That's like become the image of classical music for a lot of people. And I'm like, oh, man, look, I like waltzes, but I don't like a concert of waltzes. It's just too much of the same thing. 
Yeah. I, I can't watch that. Anyway, there's much more intellect to classical music than you get at the New Year's concert. That's a light concert. It's meant to entertain the Viennese, really, and it's become like a big thing around the world, but um, not for me, let's just say. I like all the works, but not all together like that. Anyway, this is going to be a series of uh, these sorts of dances, too. And um, we start with um, Jules Massenet. This is called uh, Le Carillon Valse au Cabaret, or Waltz in the Tavern. The Carillon is, I guess, a ballet score, and this is its opening number. It sets a rustic scene in 15th century Flanders. Massenet gives it vivid energy. The first thing we need to know about this album is that um, there are lots of cymbal crashes in these <laughs> works. This is also true of the uh, the New Year's concert in Vienna. People who write popular dances and classical music for an orchestra, they love the cymbal crash. And I just want to say something right away about cymbal crashes. There was a guy, you know, that um, who's that guy that wrote uh, Dan Brown, the uh, Da Vinci Code? Right. Somebody on the internet once wrote that reading a page of Dan Brown or of the Da Vinci Code has the effect of on your brain of unreading three pages of great literature, <laughs> <laughs> which is really a funny thing to contemplate. Now, it's my belief that this can be applied to the symbol crash. I believe that. Uh, the more cymbal crashes you hear in your life, um, like every time you hear a cymbal crash, like your IQ goes down a point, you know? <laughs> and if you need proof of that, think about uh, the guy who uh, played the cymbals in your um, junior high school marching band, okay? He he wasn't the brightest crayon in the box generally, you know? <laughs> so, because uh, he, and the reason why is because he heard all the cymbal crashes right near his head. So, I'm just kidding. I know that the percussionist <laughs> cymbals are, you know, they're good at counting because they have to wait for that big accent that they do, but not in these works. Sometimes they're actually keeping the rhythm along with the orchestra with these cymbal crashes. Anyway, this uh, piece by Massa, let's get back to this album, shall we? Okay. <laughs> this um, starts with a big fanfare. Boy, you're really, uh, the red carpet is rolled out for this work. Um, transparent sound. The recording's on the dry side. That's probably true throughout. I think it favors the top end a bit, but there are some pretty big... Uh, bottom end crashes on the album at the 59 second mark the fanfare finally ends it just goes on <laughs> and on and we hear a slow sentimental theme now there's no problem with this because we're going to hear a ballet after this normally but not on this album and because we're going to hear a lot of just different like dance works and they're going to be sort of similar in a similar vein so at a minute and 37 seconds the uh, promised uh, waltz from the waltz in the tavern is introduced and uh, we hear the um, the waltz itself at a minute and 54 seconds. And the cymbals and bass drum impact well here, so the bass has really come in. Uh, the waltz is played with the charm inherent in the score. Uh, there's a contrasting theme after 3 minutes and 40 seconds. The waltz returns for one more go before uh, the lead up to the grand final chord. So this is a rousing opening to the program. So we have our artwork there. And then the next uh, piece, as though... Um, where Roth, Francois Xavier is Roth's um, programming. He's, he's trying to show us what he's up to here. The next piece is by Hervé, and this is um, a popular work. Paris exhibition, Espanol Esteguadilla. So these are two Spanish-style dances. Hervé, his real name is Louis-Auguste Florimond Ranger, and uh, <laughs> he was a popular composer. He just called himself Hervé and became known as that. Uh, he worked in London quite a bit as well as in France and composed for the music hall so this is like a lighter 
more popular type of music where dance and ballet were also popular. The scenario of this work presents a gallery of international visitors to a universal exposition in Paris, and the stage would have been full of people. So it would have been just really interesting with all the costumes to look at, that sort of thing. It is music hall-like, the music. It's less grand than the Massenet, um, but it's still full-bodied orchestrally. Um, there's a waltz rhythm in the first minute before we get back to the Spanish-sounding dances, which are pure entertainment. There's nothing arty in this piece. It'll bring you to the dance halls of the 19th century of 19th century Paris. There are nice flutes, by the way, at the two-minute mark, and there are a lot of pleasant orchestral colors in this score. Yes, remember, I've mentioned before, the uh, French are really good at orchestral colors, and the booklet suggests that one of the reasons for this is because if you're writing a ballet score, and you're going to hear a lot of repetitive music in a ballet score because the dance mm. part is really what's most important, to keep it interesting, they would change up the... Um, orchestration and uh right. they were already kind of had an ear for that um so we hear a lot of that on this album as well okay the third uh, track is jean jen i don't know how to say this, this is a woman's name jen d'angla l'amour s'éveille love awakens and it's a waltz d'angla was one of the few women of the romantic period to have taken an interest in the repertory derived from popular dances and this has a light intro. It's a gliding waltz, instantly memorable and appealing. If the waltz rhythm isn't too much for you, uh, it's not too much for me in this particular piece, you'll like this. Uh, there are big cymbal crashes in one of the contrasting episode at a minute and 30 seconds. So there goes another IQ point. <laughs> Track four. Isaac Strauss or Isaac Strauss. I'm going to go for Isaac. Ebe polka. This is a polka, which is sort of waltz-like. It just has a slightly different rhythm. It's in three. It's got a playful theme, clearly for the dance hall. It features drums and brass and a rather slippery wind instrument in the first theme that brings a lot of appeal. This is a pretty uh, interesting work. The contrasting section follows contrasting section, and Strauss has poured a lot of melodic ideas into this piece. Track five, um, Theodore Dubois, La Farandole, Valse des âmes infidèles, the waltz of the un... Uh, how to say... The, the, the souls who haven't shown fidelity. What am I saying here? But this is, uh, we're getting more to the heavier type of uh, arty music here. It's a ballet. It's called The Forgotten Gem in the notes. Hmm. And the press of the time called the uh, Valse des Ames Infidèles one of the most graceful ideas in the Farandol score, uh, saying that it has a mysterious charm. The waltz rhythm starts right away. In the melody, strings give way to fluttering flutes, which I enjoyed. This is a real French touch, these uh, fluttering flutes. You don't really hear this in German music. They're always concerned about the line, you know, the whole, the whole shape of the work as a whole, which continue as accompaniment in the B theme. What makes this stand out for me is the flute writing and the flute playing, which is agile and staccato and shapes the curving line in a pointillist way. So if you think of, if you've ever seen one of those graphs of like a digital output, where it's not like a sine wave, but it's like all these points that kind of make a sine wave, but there are spaces in between. Mm. That's kind of the sense I'm getting of the way the flutes shape the melody in this piece. It's pretty mm. interesting. Track five. Okay, track six. Emile Waldteufel, Grande Vitesse. This is a galop, which is a kind of dance. So this is going to be a... Uh, he was the director of dance music to the imperial court during the time of Napoleon III. He was also admired in England... And uh, this is Wald Teufel. Uh, he combines the French melodic style inherited from Gounod and Bizet with the Bavarian inflections and spirit of La Bohème. 
that give his output a special flavor. By La Boheme, he means like the, the Bohemian life, just the people who were just living that life. He doesn't mean Puccini. Right. And uh, I started this out by saying, whoa, this is pretty fast. Uh, one can imagine a can-can being done to this at the Moulin Rouge in Paris. There seems to be a whistle coming in every once in a while to highlight a drum strike. Uh, the orchestral detail is pretty inventive in this piece. On the surface, this sounds like a lot of um, galops. Is like it's more than one dance, unless a galop is kind of is something like a, you know, is a is a series of dances. I'm not really sure. But the orchestral colors used in the accompaniment makes it stand out. Uh, time to catch my breath after this one. Uh, I rather enjoyed it. Actually, it was um, invigorating. <laughs> Track seven, Charles Gounod. Um, this is from his ballet Faust. All right, so as soon as you hear Faust, you're in for something a little heavy. This is a section called La Troyenne. It's a pretty serious opera, is Faust, but the French expected a ballet suite in opera, and it usually came in Act Three or Four, so latecomers wouldn't miss the sumptuous costumes and shapely legs. Let's face it, we're going to ballet <laughs> not just to see the dancing, we want to see the legs, or at least certainly people in this era did, okay? Uh, this is a famous ballet suite, by the way, and it's still heard today as, you know, isolated from the uh, opera. This is only one section of it here. The writing has some weight to it, and it's about time this hot air balloon of an album got tethered, I would say. The scoring is beautiful, with a harp arpeggio accompanying a curving string melody. You can hear the ballet elements in the score and almost imagine the steps. Track 8, Victorin Jancière. The Chevalier Jean is um, the name of the opera here. And uh, this is the ballet section. It's a waltz. Jean Sierre probably wrote this for a ball held by Philippe Moussard, who we'll hear later. Okay, so it's not an opera. It's probably like a popular theater piece. And revived the piece for his opera. Yeah, it became a popular piece arranged for piano as well. Um, the orchestration after the intro here is pretty interesting. It starts with a sort of shy tune that suddenly develops a big dance feel, complete with, you guessed it, cymbal crashes. <laughs> Every time, man, there's so many of them on this album. Every time we come out of the uh, bolder orchestrated part, we get a well-taken diminuendo that made me smile each time. So the when the... Uh, melody ends it sort of slows down and moves downward and i don't know it just really charmed me i really liked that quality of the writing and in the performance too which is well realized here it sounded like the orchestra is trying to make itself small at this point and i really sort of liked that um i like the slowing just before the approach to the final chord as well track nine a well-known um french composer camille saint-saens uh, le timbre d'argent um the sound of silver i guess that mm. is um, this is the waltz. Um, this uh, piece serves as a ballet all by itself in Sanson's score. Um, it continues the dramatic narrative, so it's like sort of an interlude, but it doesn't. It's not like a pause in the story. Oftentimes, these ballet suites are stop the story cold, so, so we can enjoy the dancing for a while. Um, this has a refreshingly different start to it than we've heard up to now. It's quiet, has weight to it. Uh, the rather fast waltz starts after this intro. Uh, there's some inventive orchestration, too, I guess, as you would um, expect from Saint-Saëns. And I like the bubbling line at and after the 1 minute and 50 second mark. It comes back to a waltzing interlude at 2 minutes and 45 seconds and has a big uh, bravura ending. Emile Waldteufel returns in track 10 with his Valse 
de patineur. A patineur is an ice skater. So the ice skater's waltz. Um, this is the second piece we're hearing by him. It starts with a horn call. Uh, the horn plays the theme as the strings lightly accompany. At the 45 second mark, the waltz rhythm fully starts up. And a theme is played in the strings. I'm wondering what's going to happen here because this is a fairly long movement at eight minutes, as I can see from my screen. <laughs> um, again, the accompaniment, most of the tracks on this album, I should say, are either anywhere from two to five minutes long. So they're kind of like pop songs in a way. Uh, the accompaniment in the orchestra and its orchestration is what makes this interesting. It's subtle. And uh, that's a good thing for me. I really enjoy subtlety. It's one of the reasons I listen to classical music because I love those little details in these big long works. Listen, for example, to the crescendoing brass from a minute and 50 seconds to the two minute mark. You can miss these things if you're only listening for the melody. You want to be, you're, especially in French music, you want to always have your ear or one part of your ear on the, uh, the uh, accompanying material because it's always doing something really interesting and just something that'll really sort of make your day sometimes. Um, more cymbal crashes in the theme that follows. <laughs> after all that great subtlety there's a nice chirping accompaniment from the winds after the three minute mark i have to say the ideas keep coming in this longish piece and they're all appealing there's a grand ending with symbols on every beat to the lead up oh man <laughs> to the final chord and a drum roll leading to the final chord all right track 11 ambroise thomas uh raymond i actually recently um he did a I recently saw an opera that he did called uh, Hamlet uh, after the Shakespeare play, and uh, that was pretty, that was a, quite a find. This one is Raymond, and it's an overture to the uh, opera. It's got a fanfare type opening with percussion. It sounds very regal. There are some dramatic phrases in the opening after the fanfare, followed by haunting quiet winds and sinister rolling strings. At the minute and 24 second mark, there's a new theme, a pizzicato bass supporting a lilting string theme. Uh, this is the stuff of theater overtures here. Uh, this theme is exposed at length with a few variations in orchestration. Then at the four minute mark, a galloping theme as in a horse galloping changes the pace again, led by strings. There's lots of uh, light cymbal crashes on every beat as a vigorous theme starts at the four minute fifty second mark. At five minutes and 34 seconds, a contrasting quieter gliding theme comes in. It gets a bit grander and there's a tension buildup released by many percussive hits and cymbal crashes up to the rousing finale. I just want to mention uh, one of the things whenever I'm teaching about music, especially classical music, you want to really think about what people liked in the period that um, th these uh, compositions were written in because um, they'll usually like the composers will usually do something to appeal to that audience. And I guess Simple Crashes was one of them. It kind of made you feel like you were <laughs> like in a sort of brash, like enjoyable environment. Mm. Uh, these really don't sound good to my ears now, but it is something of the period. You just have to sort of accept them. They were used a lot in popular dance music of the time. Track 12, Ernest Guirol, uh, Gretna Green, Valste Colin. Colin Maillard. Colin Maillard is blind man's buff. <laughs> so this means the, the uh, blind man's buff waltz. Um, this was a one-act divertissement with a Scottish flavor to the music and was not successful at the time. But this, uh, this section was a successful part of the score. Um, Le Figaro appreciated its melody. 
Um, it's as though the Figaro, the um, French uh, newspaper. It's as though the melody is a thread that leads us through the labyrinth of the constantly changing harmony and orchestration, always bringing us back to the starting point. So it has a kind of crooked staccato melody as its theme, I guess, indicating the uh, the blind man kind of moving off in all directions without seeing where he's going. Uh, it's written in dotted eighths, so so it kind of gives it that crooked uh, melody. Dun, da, dun, da, dun. Uh, then there's a 40 second at 40 seconds. There's a broad brush legato theme providing contrast. So we're going from crooked to straight. This becomes a dance with a waltz rhythm, but not a whirling waltz melody. So you have the one, two, three, one, two, three, but the uh, theme sort of continues through that um, pattern. It's it continues through at a minute and 30 seconds or so to hear what I mean. Uh, the waltz speeds up as the piece goes on until finally at the 3 minute 53 second mark, there's a pause and we're off at high speed toward the end. It's a fun piece with appealing themes as the newspaper Le Figaro indicated. Track 13, Philippe Moussard, Uistiti Polka. Press and wind chords introduce the fluttering popular music theme. Uh, this is a dance hall piece all the way. The orchestration is effective in highlighting the intertwining lines. There's more to this brief piece than a popular melody, so it's an interesting listen. Track 14, a composer who I think really deserves more attention, Leo Delib. Uh, this is from his ballet Coppelia, which is very, very famous in the ballet world. And this is a piece called uh, Vos Lente. Coppelia is one of the jewels of the French ballet repertoire. Uh, one reason French orchestration is timbre rich, as I said, is because ballets were two to three hours of wordless music, and these timbral approaches varied and enhanced the music. And I want to say Delib, despite the repetitions of the score, was exceptionally good at this. Um, this really sounds like what you'd expect to hear in a 19th century ballet with a strongly etched waltz rhythm and fluttering melodies with changing orchestration. Delib writes well for the winds, as do so many French composers, and that really brings this brief piece its appeal. Uh, Le Siecle and Roth bring a smooth waltz rhythm to this as well as all the other works on this album. We go back to Isaac Strauss, or Isaac Strauss. Um, this is the second work we're hearing by him. Quadrille sur, sur Orphée au Enfer d'Offenbach. So we all know this piece, uh, um, Orpheus in the Underworld by Offenbach. There's a really famous can-can melody in it. Listen to track 15. You'll hear it and you'll recognize it right away. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I remember this was even in uh, um, the ads when we were kids yeah. on TV. <laughs> we would see them in, in the USA mm -hmm. on some kind of soup ads, I guess, or something. Yeah. There were, you know, cans dancing, the cans with legs dancing the can-can, I believe it was. <laughs> I remember that, yeah. Oh, jeez. 1970s, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Look on YouTube, I'm sure they're up there. Anyway, a quadrille, as I mentioned, is a set of four to six contra dances chained together. So you're getting different dances all put together as one movement. Um, and that's what we hear here. Often box music, for me, is synonymous with the French can-can, at least in this piece it is. Um, you'll recognize the famous theme of Offenbach's Inside the First Minute. That's only one of them. There's another one later. Strauss's take on this is not as brash as Offenbach's original. He sort of tones it down a bit. Um, the piece's appeal comes from hearing many of the famous themes of Orpheus in the Underworld all closely knit together. So in the actual... Well, it's not an opera. It's, it's an operetta, really. Um, they, they're kind of spaced more further apart. 
Um, so we're not really assaulted by them <laughs> as we are here. Anyway, following one after the other. It's an arrangement who's, where melodic interest never flags, certainly, especially when you hear the other famous theme at the four minute and eight second mark. Uh, its swerving theme is played at roller coaster speed at um, four minutes and eight seconds. And it's well articulated and fun. The Siekel feels really at home in this music. Okay, we get back to the popular music composer Hervé. His piece, Sports in England, uh, Valse du Mal de Mer, which is the uh, mal is like uh, being sick, like Fleur du Mal, the fl- well, that would be the flowers of evil. Uh, this is called the Seasickness Waltz in English. It introduces a succession of players of diverse and sometimes unexpected sports, um, but the notes don't indicate which sports those are. The melody follows a modern tune of the time called Yachting, and this is a very brief track beginning with a moaning figure that may indicate rowing. Um, a waltz theme emerges out of this, underlined by the strings, as the rather appealing sonorities of various wind instruments play the melodies. Uh, orchestration drew me to this. I liked the orchestration in it. Mm. And finally, the third piece by Emil Valteufel ends the album, Bella Bocca. This is a polka. Bella Bocca is Italian. It means a beautiful mouth. And we end with um, something from the dance hall here. Uh, a popular sounding theme with cymbal crashes at the climaxes. A variety of themes follows. I particularly like the trumpet-led one at the two-minute mark. And the brass have an appealing and very welcome contrast mm-hmm. of timbre to the rest of the ensemble in the way this piece is written. So my ears perk up when I hear the brass come in. There's a nice fake-out harmonically just before the final chord. All right, I got to say, I've really enjoyed talking about these works, and I made fun at times, but it's really because I'm not a big fan of light orchestral dance music like this. I mean, I'll, you know, I like it when I hear it like in the middle of something really tough. It's like a little break, but an entire album of them really is too much for me. Um, I'm kind of more of an arty, heavy type when it comes to classical music. Um, the, the simple crashes just get to me. Um, a subtly, subtlety is not a quality of French dance music, dance music for the theater, be it for the music hall or the opera stage. Um, I really feel that a lot of this move, music loses something without the visual spectacle to go with it. Now, that said, this is a really good album. It's a unique program, though on the surface it may sound like another program of light orchestral works. A lot of the composers here don't get much of an outing on recordings, and the performances are authentic to the period expertly played on instruments of the 19th century period. So it's recommended this out. I recommend this album to anyone who's attracted to light orchestral music for the theater. The dance rhythms are well caught and the whole sound of the album is what you'd want out of such a program. Um, I get the impression the orchestra really enjoyed playing this music. Um, It's got an enthusiastic feel to it and you can't go wrong with the performances. And I have to say, I enjoyed listening to it, writing about it, talking about it it was fun i made fun but really it's it's a really good album and if you're interested in this you should absolutely hear it yeah it sounds good the performances are enthusiastic and it kind of puts you in the mind of imagining what the dance hall or exactly yeah. entertainment of that day would be like and i guess you know the cymbal crashes and all the other rhythms are part of that atmosphere where people are up and moving around and it's something kind of foreign to us uh, today but it was kind of nostalgic and fun to hear these polkas mixed with the waltzes 
And because it's, you know, French, you do have all this timbral variety that makes it kind of interesting and uh, a little bit of unique personality from these other composers. And yeah, it's not generally my thing either, but it put a smile on my face. Yeah, a lot of it uh, did. There was a lot of really good stuff on it too, even that'll appeal to really anyone. Nothing too heavy or going to weigh you down, uh, but if you want a kind of rhythmic and uh, danceable kind of background music uh, or something just to lift the spirits this is enjoyable sure yeah i will admit i did break it into two different listens because i was like oh man these simple <laughs> crashes are really really getting to me <laughs> yeah interesting collection though yeah it was it's was, it was really unique it's uh some real discoveries on it too all right, let's go on. We're going to go to another theater composer, a, a more serious sort of theater, really, musical theater, but um, sort of a heavy musical theater. The music of Kurt Weil. Um, the, incidentally, there's now a uh, a rock guitarist named Kurt Weil, V-I-L-E, not to be confused <laughs> with the German composer Kurt Weil, W-E-I-L-L, from the early 20th century whose uh, most famous composition is probably Mac the Knife, which has become a jazz standard from the Three Penny Opera. Uh, This, however, is a recording of his two symphonies. And uh, there's also um, some excerpts from uh, Der Silbersi, which was a sort of theater piece that he wrote, or music for a theater piece. It wasn't a musical. Um, This is performed by the Swedish Chamber Orchestra, and the real interest here is the uh, orchestra is conducted by H.K. Gruber, who is a Viennese composer himself and has written some pretty interesting works. Um, And this is on uh, Beast, and it's also an SACD. And oh, listeners, if you have an SACD player, whether it's two-channel or five-channel, this is a really spectacularly vivid recording. This is one well worth hearing for that, I would say. Um, at least it was in um, in five channel. I'm sure it was in two channel too. I didn't really check, but uh, I'll get to that soon. Um, the Viola symphonies have, at least the second symphony, have been reco- recorded quite a bit lately. Um, there was one last year um, that I remember um, seeing, but I didn't actually listen to it. So this one came out. And I was attracted by the fact that H.K. Uh, Gruber was conducting it, and also by the uh, cover of the album, which features a photo of the Lichtberg Cinema in Berlin in 1929. So it's got that sort of, um, you know, Fritz Lang metropolis sort of uh, design to it. It's a really hmm. attractive looking building. It's a gorgeous photo too, and uh, very classy cover art on this album. So you might want to even just do a search for it. Just click one of the links that we're providing for this album and just check out the album cover. I think it's worth seeing. All right, so anyway, we, let's just go right into this. Uh, tracks one through four are all from Der Silbersee, ein Wintermärchen. Um, Silbersee is the Silver Sea, the Silver Lake. And Ein Wintermärchen is a winter's tale. Um, Weil called this a play with music. The book and lyrics are by Jörg Kaiser. Um, so no Berto Brecht in this one. Although I have to say the lyrics to the two songs we hear do sound kind of Brechtian. They're so, you know, ironic and cynical. <laughs> we'll talk about that soon. This piece premiered simultaneously in Leipzig, Erfurt, and Magdeburg in February 1933, and there were uh, Nazi riots during rehearsals and an anti-Semitic demonstration at the second performance in Magdeburg. Um, You could think about the uh, frozen lake across which the characters Olim and Severin magically escape 
as a metaphor for Vile's own flight, um, first to uh, France and then to the United States. Um, so uh, I was just thinking, I th- we're seeing kind of things like this again, like the uh, those environmentalists introduced the uh, the World Snooker Tournament. <laughs> I guess um, if you think about that, you, this is a more severe version of something like that. Anyway, we hear the overture to Derzil Bercy here. Um, the score has 16 numbers and we're hearing three of them on this album uh, the overture embodies vile's iconic ability to fuse classical symmetry and jazzed up rhythms now when i say jazzed up rhythms he doesn't really do anything that sounds like traditional jazz he really had his own take on the way it, it it's kind of like a weird like jazz put in like a cabaret hall and it just winds up mixing together Mm. to be this its own unique thing vile really had something really special and we're going to hear that all through this album um there are also march elements that create an ominous undercurrent so this has a vigorous opening with swirling themes vivid sound and boy the five channel uh, surround sounds fantastic on this and if you have a subwoofer even better um this tight bass sound sacd and dsd recordings tend to have that when they're well recorded Um, It's partly the orchestration that's causing this um, effect, which is tightly layered. Uh, There's a trumpet theme with that period jazz feel that Vile would conjure up. It becomes a march. Uh, Then the scurrying material returns with dotted rhythms driving the theme. Track two is a song, number three in the um, set of 16. Der Becker backt ums Morgenrot. And uh, th- these songs are sung by the conductor, H.K. Gruber, uh, who really does have a Viennese feel. He has a really authentic <laughs> feel for these songs. Um, he sings them himself. Uh, this song means the baker bakes at dawn, and it's a, an ironic peen, or song of praise, to a loaf of bread, a symbol of sustenance and survival in a society that disadvantages those who are already deprived yeah, there was a lot of... Vile had these themes going through his uh, theater music a lot. Anyway, Severin, the character, sings that anyone who forgets money won't be able to eat. The refrain warns, meanwhile, that everyone should be ready to tighten their belts. Uh, if you're familiar with Vile's songs, this fits in well with those from the Three Penny Opera or the Seven Deadly Sins. It's sort of sing-spoken. Uh, the music has a circus-like or cabaret-like. Hmm. It's a style really unique to Vile um, and probably other music of the time that we really don't hear much of anymore. But Vile really was the king when it came to these sorts of things. Gruber is pretty sinister and dramatic in the vocal part, and the bass drum at the end really hits the chest cavity firmly. Might even blow you back in your seat. It's really great. (laughs) Track three is just a spoken introduction by Gruber to the next track uh, and it's an explanation in English in fact of what we're about to hear and is done with some characterization of the nasty character singing it we get to that on track four number seven in this in the uh, score was zahlen sie für einen rat what do you pay for advice and in this scene a lottery agent informs Odem, the other character that he has won a cash prize uh, the commentary on commercial greed is brought to life with a signature rhythm of Vile's German period works, the tango. Yeah, the ironic tango of Kurt Vile. <laughs> it has a funereal opening, which is kind of odd for someone who just won the lottery. Yeah. During the first verse, there's a striking trumpet line accompanying. The orchestration subtly differs in each verse. There's a funereal brass harmony in the last minute. Toward the end of the last verse, in tango rhythm, 
This subtly morphs to string harmony. There's a, there are gorgeous brass chords at the end. And I want you to hear those brass chords because, again, there's something special about the way Vile, the way they sound in Vile's sort of writing for them. They, you know, you can kind of tell it's him. Track five is the first symphony. It's a one-movement um, symphony. It's called Symphonie in einem Satz, in fact, in one movement. And it's also known as the Berliner Symphony, um, the Berlin Symphony, not the donut, the city. <laughs> Anyway, this was the uh, standout on the album for me, even though it's not the most popular piece. It was a real find. It's a great recording. Um, this is performed from the critical edition, which was edited by James Holmes. Uh, it didn't get a public performance until after Vile's death in 1950. It was premiered in 1958 and written in 1921. The score had been shipped from Berlin to the publisher Universal Edition in Vienna, and then it was preserved in an Italian convent so it wouldn't be confiscated by the Nazis. Hmm. The title page is missing, probably removed by the nuns. Uh, Vile was 21 when the score was completed. Uh, during his first year in the master class of his most important teacher, Ferruccio Busoni, who was one of the great uh, pianists of hmm. the early 20th century. It has abundant melodic invention and sophisticated harmonic turns. The work is rooted in C major, but defies tonal structure. The broad chords opening the work recur cyclically throughout, so you can follow those. We'll hear them at the end as well. So we hear those chords at the beginning. The rhythm sounds like bells tolling. The harmony is striking, uh, harmonic, but with some unique color notes in there. There's a warm sound on the recording. The bass registers with gorgeous warmth. At the 2 minute and 18 second mark, the rhythm livens up, and there are some shrieking lines in the brass. The bass drum hit at 2 minutes and 37 seconds practically lifted me out of my seat. Wow, is that well captured? I wonder what mics they used on this uh, recording. Um, it's a fantastically vivid recording. Listen to the strings in the chugging rhythm at the 3 minute and 40 second mark for some of that sumptuous sound. You can really, it's not even that you can just hear the, the bows like striking the strings, but that you are the bow striking the string. <laughs> the recording sort of gives you that quality um a slow swaying rhythm is heard at the uh, five minute mark that explodes into huge bass drum hits at five minutes and 18 seconds you really buckle yourself in before you listen to this piece there are a lot of really loud explosive sounds in it the symphony engages in a lot of quick changes um but not as quick as last week's uh bornstein of course um there are many ideas in this though and a lot of them with a sharp ironic edge characteristic of the time and the Viles music in general. There's some pretty wind harmony at 7 minutes and 38 seconds, and this expands briefly into a Hollywood-type movie theme, maybe uh, Vile um, indicating his future there, which quickly disintegrates. And then quick metamorphoses of material follow, so it's really hard to keep up with from this point, but it culminates in a thunderous bass drum and ominous strings in the 10th minute. After this climax... There's a buildup followed by a sweet violin melody with mournful, odd brass harmony accompanying. So it's a real contrast there. I like the way Vile writes for brass. He gets a unique sound from the harmony he composes for them. At the 12 minute and 17 second mark, a fugue pattern begins, and it's broken up when the winds take it over. And a new wind theme and harmony starts at the 12 minute and 45 second mark. The fugal material starts again at 13 minutes and 33 seconds and builds up. 
It's infiltrated again by winds, but the strings this time become more insistent and a string melody continues through harmony from the rest of the orchestra. Listen to the ear-catching quality of the orchestration in the 15th minute. Low reed instruments are written for with such character and there is a wryness to them, characteristic of vile, wry, W-R-Y, um, and characteristic of the melodies he gives them. They do that quality well, do the uh, reed instruments. There's some saccharine sweet violin harmonies leading up to the 17th minute, of course, ironic. Then explosive bass drum leads to the final section that pulls out the stops, complete with chiming percussion, and a repeat of the chords we heard at the beginning. The climax to this section is muscular and is surprisingly followed by a quieter, plaintive wind harmony. Strings and low brass bring the piece to a rather ominous, dramatic end. This really is a unique sounding work captured beautifully here in performance and recorded quality, and I enjoyed it a lot. This was my favorite work on the album. Now, the most well-known work on the album is the um, Symphony No. 2, Fantasie Symphonique, in three movements. This was written from 1933 to 1934, and Weil had written the first movement of this symphony by March 1933, and when he had uh, fled the Nazis in Berlin for Paris, uh, he would never return to Germany for the rest of his life. The symphony was completed in Louveciennes by February 1934, and was premiered in October 1934, so it didn't have to wait for like the previous symphony. Um, there are allusions to Weil's uh, Die Sieben Todsünden, The Seven Deadly Sins, his last collaboration with Bertolt Brecht, which premiered in Paris in June 1933. The first movement marked Sostenuto and then Allegro Molto, so it's an introduction and then a main section. It starts with an urgent violin gesture, followed by warm string chords. By the 47th second mark we're already hearing a funereal theme in the trumpet gruber's pacing makes the shape of these phrases register strongly on the mind there are a lot of quick contrasts in the material between fast and slow loud and soft energetic and torpid yes i want to mention hk gruber really gets this music to its core i mean this is the way it really is supposed to sound and he just draws everything there is out of it he he really is a someone who really understands his Viennese culture deeply. Anyway, next, the bass drum again really pushes key moments forward with its strong presence on the recording. If you're only familiar with Vile's songs, you'll find this movement, aside from the Seven Deadly Sins illusions, to be practically without his well-known fingerprints. Only the sensitive brass writing betrays his presence somewhat, and we don't get those odd harmonies he employed in the previous symphony. This is more straightforward in the latter half of the movement, energy runs out and there's a constant rushing in the various orchestral groups with a brief waltzing interlude in the sixth minute. I also enjoyed the very subtle string accompaniment to the wind and brass theme just before and after the seventh minute. Perfect balance too. This is really a fantastic performance. It sounds like the bows are gently bouncing off the strings to create the effect. The rhythm here is still 3-4 though the waltzing sense is gone. We get an exciting, urgent approach to the end of the movement, crashing down on a final chord emphasized by the bass drum. The second movement is marked Largo, and uh, the uh, conductor, H.K. Gruber, refers to this as a trauer tango, or funeral tango. The music hovers between major and minor, and has more of the vile feel to it in the opening chords, both in the orchestration and harmony combined. At the one minute mark, we hear a wind-driven variation on the opening, much gentler, 
with a cello counter melody. Uh, it sounds like I'm hearing a trombone in a minute and 46 seconds, now playing a theme over a lugubriously bouncing accompaniment. Lugubriously bouncing. You're really going to have to hear that to understand what I mean. In a minute and 46 seconds. It's a real contrast in sounds. Strings sweeten it up, and I love the way Vile has continued the rhythm, but added new elements to it at the 2 minute and 37... 2 minutes and 30 second mark. A new section starts and builds to a climax at 4 minutes and 30 seconds where the music takes a more menacing turn. I love the very violin blend of brass and winds at around the 6 minute mark sounding heavy yet quiet. The movement is full of themes so let your ear wander to that. There's another interesting one before the 7 minute and 30 second mark before the outburst in the 8th minute. A contrasting quieter theme follows at 8.45. I really love the harmony on the loud menacing chord being prolonged and repeated at 9 minutes and 40 seconds. We hear another version of the opening in the winds at the 10 minute mark, again with that compelling harmony that Vile always provides. The movement ends quietly. The third movement is marked Allegro Vivace, then Presto. It's a rondo, and um, the flurrying accompaniment and theme open the movement. It's got a popular circusy type of theme coming next in the first minute and the theme gets passed to highly contrasting timbres. I love the quality in these works and it's constantly heard in this movement. This sort of being passed around and hmm. you know uh, all these little surprises of uh, timbre. Uh, there's great energy to the rhythmic drive and Gruber and the orchestra make sure we feel it. Um, an odd marching clarinet theme at 3 minutes and 20 seconds is characteristic of Vile and of the time as is the March theme that's emphasized afterward. This is morphed away from in interesting ways with the orchestration always beguiling. By the middle of the fifth minute, the tempo has increased to presto and a galloping rhythm is heard under the thematic material. Vial leads this to an energetic, quickly taken ending arrived at by a crescendo. This is a fantastic release, actually, if you like the material. Uh, the recording quality is absolutely top drawer and the performances capture the vial qualities perfectly. Gruber has the measure of this music right down to its roots. There are all sorts of niceties of orchestration and harmony that uniquely make Vile's orchestral works his own. They're brought out perfectly by Gruber and the orchestra here. Um, he can do a sad kind of irony like no one else. This is Vile. And we get a bit of that here too, particularly in Der Zilberzee, but in passing in the symphonies as well. I like Vile enough, but if, but I really enjoyed this release and urge you to hear it whether you're a fan or not. It was interesting to me because I know most of his, you know, popular songs that came from, <laughs> you know, theater things. Of so course, yeah. kind of wondered, you know, what's his symphonic music going to be like? And it's really different. Yeah, it <laughs> so is different. The yeah. uh, Symphony One is, it's a really a huge chunk of music to yeah. take in at once, you know, in this one movement. I thought the harmony was very interesting. It's yeah. a kind of modern sense not always dissonant, but as you say, it's not, you know, traditionally tonal uh, mm -hmm. and a lot of interesting idiosyncrasies to it. Uh, there's lots of running rhythmic lines in it. And then there's huge walls of sound in certain sections of it as well. And I thought it was kind of interesting that it reaches this huge kind of false climax at around 18 minutes with the big brass. And you think that's going to be it, but it's not <laughs> you know, a final sort of more subdued and uh, minor climax at the end. So I have to listen to that a few more times. It's a lot to take in. in one he, he was 21 when he wrote yeah. that. 
God. And the second symphony, there's kind of soft dissonances. Again, that constant movement. I like the woodwind writing in the first movement a lot. And of course, trombone solo is very cool to have. So that <laughs> makes the second movement. You don't get a lot of trombone solos. Yeah, that's a, that's a quality in 20th century music. The brass yeah. kind of came into prominence. And yeah, in the third movement too, again, constant motion and lots of different timbres. It's quite rhythmic too. So yeah, interesting. And yeah, I'm kind of impressed that he could have, you know, this kind of symphonic personality and sort of language of his own. And then also write these really appealing kind of pop melodies too, that yeah. sort of caught your ear with all the little hooks in them as well. So yeah, I'll yeah. have to listen to these a few more times to uh, really get inside of them, but uh, it's definitely worth a listen. He was really special and died way too young. He was 50 yeah. when he died. Mm-hmm. And uh, it would have been nicer to hear more from him as into the 50s and 60s if he had lived that long. Um, I'll have to get you the uh, the SACD for this because I think it sounds yeah. absolutely fantastic. All right. Anyway, our last um, classical work for this week is Nino Rota, a composer both of us have really grown up liking a lot. Yeah. And um, we're hearing a lot more of his um, concert works these days, which is very welcome to me. Last year, we did uh, a recording of his chamber works, and they were really revelatory. I really yeah. enjoyed that album a lot. Um, this one is on the Capriccio label. It's um, orchestral works. We have two from movie scores, War and Peace, and um, the uh, orchestral rehearsal. That's um, from um, the Fellini movie. And then um, three concert hall works, Castel del Monte, a harp concerto, and concerto for strings. This is uh, performed by the WDR Funkhaus Orchestra Kuhn. Maybe a great name for a, like a, an American ensemble, the, the Funkhaus Orchestra. <laughs> but that's not what it means. <laughs> Funkhaus Orchestra Kuhn. Um, Felix Bender uh, does the majority of the uh, conducting, and Michael Seal conducts the uh, the harp concerto. And uh, I'll mention the soloists when we uh, get to those works. Um, this is on the Capriccio label. Okay, so we have the two film score suites beginning and ending the program and the three orchestral concert hall works in between. Uh, Rota considered his orchestra works and operas to be absolutely equal to his film scores, uh, but the film scores are so famous that they overshadow the concert works. I kind of think the opposite, though. I really like his uh, concert <laughs> music a lot more than his film scores, except for the like the really famous ones, like The Godfather or the Fellini ones. I should say for our listeners, the the Deezer tracks listing for this is uh, incomplete. Yes. So if you're listening to it on Deezer, there are only half the tracks, and yeah. not the best ones at that. And I I wrote to them, and hopefully they'll add the missing tracks soon but the apple music and spotify uh, listings are complete so if, if you want to you can listen to them there for the missing information from deezer yeah and i should mention that uh, 83 minutes this is a very long album yes mm. all right so the first 11 tracks are from uh war and peace um his film music suite from the film from 1956 it was a king vidor film it was an american italian film in 1956, so in Italian, it's known as uh, Guerra e Pace, and that's uh, mentioned on the um, CD. You can listen to the suite and experience the film in front of your inner eye. Uh, light motives are used in certain parts. Themes assigned 
to characters. It's a, that's what a light motif is. Now, it's a pretty straightforward score, to be honest. It's got it's really big boned. Um, the introduction, uh, the recording is pretty hot with the fanfares and broad brushstrokes making this sound like a film score of the past. When I say hot, I mean it's really very present. There's not much sort of space beyond the sound. Mm. Um, it's got Russian elements in it, and once the music changes to something lighter at a minute and 18 seconds, it's got kind of a movie happiness to it. Uh, this disappears at a minute and 44 seconds as more dramatic gunshot-type figures are heard. A romantic theme follows, and the intro ends with a long trill and foreboding gunshot rhythms. Now, this whole score is going to have, it's kind of a funny balance between like uh, what's become movie cliche and really wrote his own sort of original take on um, orchestration and uh, his, um, you know, melodic genius. Now, I also want to mention what we think of as movie cliche wasn't a cliche when these pieces were written. <laughs> they, were, they were the way these composers sounded and they really made it so popular that other composers started kind of like borrowing from it, and then they all became cliches. So you want to think about that when you hear Rota's music, and when also when you hear uh, Eric uh, Korngold's um, orchestra, uh, film scores too mm. for the Errol Flynn movies. That was all original at the time and became cliched because it was reused by so many other composers. Okay. The second track, Momento Musicale, these are all pretty short. Uh, there's a Russian feel to this melody. The third movement um, is a waltz. I had had enough of that for this week. <laughs> but uh, it's a dance scene in a Russian palace, and it's got a lot of glitter to it. Um, the strings lead the waltz melody, um, and it just kind of ends on a held note, not on a tonic. The fourth movement is a polonaise, the fourth track, ballroom dance, and it has a more severe military feel to it. The fifth track is La Rosa di Novgorod, the Rose of Novgorod, and it's a love theme with the English horn and uh, the solo horn as well. Uh, the phrasing and melodic contour let us know this is a Russian-themed piece. It's pretty straightforward, and like everything we've heard so far, instantly appealing. Um, a violin rings out some extra emotion when it plays the theme at the end. Track six is number 54 in the score, Esoda da Mosca, when we, um, the exodus from Moscow. Uh, this has a metallic sound at the beginning with chiming bells, a metal percussion giving it a snowy feel. It changes to a waltz momentarily, then darkens as a gong is heard. The opening snowy landscape music is heard again. The orchestration here is highly evocative of the wintry movie scene it's scored for. This is really an inventive movement and really the most interesting one in this whole suite. Track 7, Andrea and Natasha, which is a straightforward string love theme, sweetly played. Um, but it doesn't fall into schmaltz, thankfully, but it's pretty close. <laughs> it's right on the line. Um, it, it, and it probably would have sounded schmaltzy if it was in the wrong hands. Um, it's warm and romantic here and ends on what sounds like a seventh chord. There's no rest. Uh, then we go into track eight, which is number 66 in the score. La Ritirata della Grande Armée, which means the, the uh, retreat of the Grand Army. The wounded soldiers here withdraw in winter, so we hear a wind machine. Uh, there are ominous repeated chords heard and desolate harmonies depicting the plight of the army. Track 9 is number 67 in the score, Prigion, Pr Prigionia. Similar figures are in the previous track, but here more ominous still. There's a repeating horn call that's heard throughout the movement in various instruments, including percussion. In the second minute, we hear a downward-moving, trudging bass line in the low strings. 
A more hopeful rising theme is heard in the strings at 2 minutes and 50 seconds. This theme is then taken up by the entire orchestra and powerfully put across. Track 10 is Ritorno a Mosca, the return to Moscow. Uh, regal harmony and rhythm are heard and very vivid brass on this recording. The tuba registers strongly as the anchoring bass note, and I really liked that. Hmm. There's harp accompaniment to a string theme afterwards, which is sweeping and romantic. The brass harmony is gorgeous in this movement. Track 11, number 73 in the score, the finale. The harmony at the beginning is really interesting. There's a rising harp line, but I'm not sure what's making the dissonant sound underlying it. The theme swells Hollywood style and is driven by the strings. At the two-minute mark, we hear a Stravinsky firebird type of brass harmony bringing the word to a close on a big final chord. This is a pretty interesting uh, work because it begins like with really light sort of dance music and then gets more sort of um, inventive and uh, descriptive as it uh, goes mm. on. So it's, it's really an interesting arrangement. Um, it's really made to order for the film, but entertaining nevertheless with memorable themes. Now, Rota is always getting in elements of orchestration or harmonic turns of phrase that make you smile. Um, I thought this one was, this was an okay movie suite. I'm really not a fan of the movie suite because I think it, I think we live in the, we grew up in the movie age. Mm-hmm. So we watched yeah. a lot of these movies on TV and uh, I just, I think I was just worn out by seeing the images as well, this music. <laughs> Um, the music is definitely there to serve the movie, as it should be. It's memorable, but it's fairly, well, I shouldn't say predictable, because as it goes on, it gets more and more interesting. Uh, it's really a lot of it, 1950s movie stuff, good full sound quality on the recording. Anyway, I was happy to get to track 12, Castel del Monte, Ballata per corno, or horn, French horn, and orchestra, 1974. The horn soloist here is Marcel Sobol, and it's a one-movement concerto, really. The title refers to a castle in Andria in the Apulia region in southeastern Italy, which was built around uh, 1240 to 1250. Situated on a gently rising hill, it features a mighty octagonal tower in the center. The horn's theme begins lyrically as the music becomes increasingly rhapsodic, which means I'm not going to be able to describe it because it's just very inventive, and it is. Mm. It starts with a harp accompanying the mellow French horn theme that features three-note phrases at the beginning. Reed instruments take over the theme and its repeat. At 2 minutes and 11 seconds, a chirpier theme begins with the horn playing a single-note Morse code rhythm with spring-like thematic material around him. The music here is ballet-like in its leaping energy. At the 3 minutes and 2 second mark, the rhythm morphs into a two-note repeating accompaniment as the horn plays its theme. Sections and with the moods change quickly in rhapsodic fashion. The horn initiates a new quarter note theme at 510, 5 minutes and 10 seconds. It speeds up as the theme goes on and the orchestra picks it up, then morphs again into a more ominous though quiet rhythm. The rhapsodic inventive changes continue until we reach a calm conclusion. And this is a real contrast to the War and Peace music. It's leaner and it's a lot artier, so heavier. And it's all appealing on the surface despite that. So there's, you've got a surface appeal, and then you've got this sort of really interesting harmony happening below. The standout work, well, not this one. <laughs> the standout work for me is not this next piece, but the one <laughs> after it. But this one is the Concerto per Archi, or for strings. It's a string concerto. And the title evokes a Baroque suite, and in fact, the uh, titles of the movements do as well. The first one is... a. Uh, Preludo, which is a prelude, 
The opening melody stands out for its memorability, as is so often the case with Rota. The theme at 31 seconds has a movie-like contour to it. At 1 minute and 26 seconds, we're in a new, more aggressive section, though it's played for its melodic appeal. Rough edges disappear quickly. At the 2 minutes and 4 second mark, the aggressive rhythm is back, but it doesn't overwhelm. It morphs to tension-building melodic figures that shorten as they build. The movement ends on an open cadence. The second movement is a scherzo, and it has a flowing, happy-go-lucky quality to it, wandering through a harmonic background that doesn't have a particular aim. The mass strings register with power and a tangible quality on the recording. Aggressive elements build, but they're not done wildly, just with control, and I think that's appropriate given how quickly the character of the music changes. There's a solo rustic violin at 2 minutes and 30 seconds. The aggressive strings come back, and here I have to say that I think that a bit more aggression could have been put into them, as the tempo seems to slacken towards the end. The third movement, aria, walking rhythm and a melody that floats over it. A solo violin plays a theme starting just before the first minute. Lovely handoffs to the various sections of the strings at around the two-minute mark, going all the way down to the rich-sounding bass. Uh, The rhythm, again, isn't quite as taut as it could be in this movement, which is generally quiet and ends on a decrescendo. So I I would have liked more aggression in the performance. I think it would have really put this score across more strongly. The fourth movement finale has a stylistic balancing act between 18th-century Italian elements, German Romanticism, and the early 20th-century avant-garde recalling Prokofiev. Um, The movement's being played for its melodic qualities, but I feel the chugging rhythm at the beginning could use more tautness and aggression. So this is a fault that I'm finding really with this entire performance (laughs) of this particular work. It's good. Don't, Don't let me turn you off it, but I just feel like there's more in this score that's not really registering. Um, It should sound unstoppable to me, but here it just sounds kind of measured. Instead, we get a sort of comic operatic quality to the playing. No problem with that. I guess it's the interpretation. Uh, The tension at the end doesn't build up as effectively as it could, and that's the performance's fault. It's a good piece, but I feel like the performance doesn't really give it enough heat. But it's it's an acceptable performance. There's no... I have no real issue with it. It's just I would have preferred more. Okay, so the standout work for me on this album is tracks 17 through 19, the Harp Concerto from 1947. The harpist here is Esther Peristarakis, and uh, we have a different conductor here. This is Michael Seal conducting. Um, It's a three-movement work. The first movement is Allegro Moderato, and it starts with a ripple from the bass end of the harp. The music is propulsive and features short phrases of the harp that are handed back and forth between harp and orchestra. The harp sparkles throughout, and I really enjoyed the changing orchestration as various sections went by. There's a slow crescendo to a climax at about the third minute, and then we're back to the quieter, energetic, chirpy music of the beginning. There's a nice interrupted cadence by the solo harp at the four minutes or so, where it completely changes the tempo with a slowed-down change of pace in the cadenza. The cadenza ends in sparkling arpeggios, as the wind section reawakens with early morning bird chirping figures. The movement heads toward its quiet end with chirping figures and finally simply rests on the final chord. The second movement, Andante, um, has the orchestra and harp laying out a ponderous pacing rhythm played in even quarter notes on every beat. A repeating drum beat is heard in the first minute, adding weight to the piece. 
The harp finally comes in solo just before the two-minute mark, repeating and adding figuration to the themes we've heard. There's a great interrupted cadence at the three minutes and 19 second mark as a louder ominous theme comes out. This is a dark movement in general, and there's a uh, serene horn call at the four minute mark echoing through the brass section, and the movement is suddenly hopeful. A beautiful light string melody follows it around the four minute and 30 second mark. At 510, the drum beat returns and a harp solo follows. Uh, a sudden change leads to a dawn-like serenity and lightness, and the movement ends on a harp arpeggio with strings doing a natural fade. Yeah, I went into jazz language there, a harp solo. It's a harp cadenza, <laughs> I should have said. If I'm going to go uh, classical there. Sometimes you listen to both jazz and classical, you confuse your terms. Mm. Anyway, the third movement, Allegro, uh, has vigorous unison string themes opening the movement, and the harp comes in shimmering with figures accompanying the wind chords. The flute has a theme at the 48-second mark, and the harp repeats it. It gets handed to the trumpet. There's a detour. Then the theme is handed throughout the orchestra. The movement sparkles. Notice I'm using this word a lot. There's a, there's a lot of sparkle in this work, despite its being fairly heavy. It's not a light work. With lovely wind and brass writing, the harp gets a brief cadenza in the fourth minute. The playing is highly melodic and appealing here. And the harp builds up harmonic tension, which is interrupted by the orchestra, which starts a vigorous unison figure as at the beginning. We hear the wind chords from the opening ascending and descending again. A brief repeat of the opening melody shortened and leading to a satisfying final chord. Um, it's a heavyish work, but very listenable. And I like this work the best on this album. The last work is also a three very short bits of a movie score, a Prova d'Orchestra, or uh, the orchestra rehearsal. It's a Fellini movie from 1978. And um, it's stylistically more modern than the music in, in War and Peace, which is more heavily symphonic. In the first bit that we hear called Risatine Maliziose, which means like malicious laughter or little laughs, Risatina. Um, it has a comic quality to it as it creeps forward at a high moderate tempo. Strings play the opening theme, winds take the middle, Brass get a section as well, playing new material. The second movement is called Valzarino, number 72, which Valzarino kind of means a little waltz, I guess, but um, it's a loopy, slightly crazed waltz, sounding a bit like a machine out of control. It's brief and fits in well as a Fellini score. The handing off of the theme throughout the orchestra makes for entertaining listening. And the third uh, movement, Galop, in the movie, this accompanies the scene where the conductor is working with the musicians and the rehearsal is growing more and more tumultuous. It starts with a pretty sounding celesta, but aggressive dotted rhythms of a type we've heard in other Fellini movies are heard in the winds, then the strings. There are occasional whip crack sounds from the percussion. The music gets more and more out of control, galloping as it goes on through a, as though a rider has lost control of a horse. Uh, which is a good um, metaphor for a conductor losing control of an orchestra. <laughs> it stays within its harmony. The humor and effects are all in the rhythm and orchestration. The piece suddenly cuts off, and that's the end of the album. Nino Rota once said, I do everything I can to give everyone a moment of happiness. This is the heart of my music. Um, Happiness had little to do with the historical trajectory of the 20th century that Rota lived in. 
But uh, nevertheless, he thought it uh, good to provide happiness in his music. Uh, concert music reflected the um, sort of historical trajectory of the 20th century, the, uh, the horrors of it. And perhaps Rota's concert music wasn't taken seriously enough as a result. Um, we should take it more seriously now, though, even though times seem to be getting bad again. But um, we live in a better time to be uh, accepting his orchestral music. And I think we really need this happiness that it provides us. This is a good album. Um, I liked the Chamber album released by Alpha that we did in 2021 much more. Um, the concert works have more excitement built into them on this album than we're hearing here. Well, I shouldn't say that. That was true of the um, the, uh, con- the concerto for strings, but I thought the harp concerto came across very well. Um, these are all perfectly fine performances, though, and I think we need to hear this music. So this is a welcome release. Um, the major work, as I said, was the harp concerto, and I thought that it and the Castel del Monte were the two most successful works on the disc, both well-performed. As a program, I thought it was okay. I much preferred the concert works to the film works, maybe because I'm familiar with the style. Roto is a solid composer of concert music, and I'd recommend you hear this music. Um, I'd send you to the 2020 alpha release of Rota's chamber music first, though. Yeah, like you, I preferred the chamber music recording just because it had a lot of surprises in it for me. Mm. But here, too, you're always impressed by his gift for melody, uh, no matter what the type of composition. True. Oh, yes. And I like the harp concerto the best. Yeah, me too. And yeah, I found it absolutely. really charming and uh, sparkly, like you said. And it's also the best performance as well. Like the, mm. the rhythms kind of are well realized and yeah. And But the horn concerto was interesting as well. So I'm wondering what other works he may have like these uh, yeah. still to be discovered. Uh, I'd like to hear us. more. So, yeah, I'm, I'm up for hearing more of his music in any style. Um, but I definitely recommend that uh, chamber music uh, right. that we did. Uh, what was that 2021? 2021 it was. Yeah. yeah, it was a long time ago yeah, now. Definitely hear that. I actually couldn't find the episode we did it on. It came out in 2021. We may have even done it in 2022, mm. but it's a 2021 release. Yeah. That's that one I mean uh, surprised me in, in quite a few ways. So Me too, yeah. Mm. All right, it's time to move on to the jazz segment of the program. Ooh, it's getting more rhythmic in here now. Uh, yeah, and this week, <laughs> it's all drummers and drummer-composers. These days, drummers don't just keep the beat, but they write the tunes as well. How about that? And it's kind of interesting to me looking at music and how it relates to the performers who compose them. So, you know, a lot of music is written by pianists, you know, pop songs and other styles of music. And then I was always kind of uh, interested to see songs that were written by guitarists because they always had different kinds of chords in them or kind of altered right. chords. And I said, well, how did they think of that note? And then when I started playing guitar, I started to say, oh, he, he moved a finger over here and it sounded good. And then you right. know, it turned out to be called this chord. Like the layout of the instrument kind of yeah. has a lot to do with it. You know? And when I hear songs that are written by wind players or vocalists, you know, I expect to see these kind of flowing sort of melodic development in them because they're, you know, linear thinkers. And then again, when bassists write songs, it's completely unique and you get unexpected sort of harmonies and chord inversions because the bassists are always thinking from the bottom up. Yeah, I find that interesting too. You know, um, Paul McCartney, Brian Wilson. Sting too, yeah. Yeah. 
you know, so you get a different perspective. So, of course, we can expect drummers to have a very rhythmic sort of take and be uh, tuned to the intricate details of the different rhythms. But, you know, what other kinds of compositions are they going to have? Well, you'll find a lot to discover in this program. And also, it's quite international. And, well, we're going to start out in uh, Norway via Israel with our first mm. artist, Udi Shlomo. And his recording, You and Me, and this is on Alessa Records. It came out March 17th. Shlomo's a drummer, composer, and arranger from Israel with roots from Iraq, Poland, and old Czechoslovakia. But since 2010, he's been in Norway. He started playing drums at the age of five in the Kibbutz Music Room. And at eight, he began his formal music training. And then he continued to study music after high school, and he went on to uh, study at the Rimon School of Jazz and Contemporary Music. And as I said, he's been uh, doing his own thing in Norway since 2010 with various projects. And he had a previous recording, 2021 uh, Diaspora House, also on Alessa Records. And on this recording, he's, on, of course, on drums with all the compositions and arrangements. We've got on saxophone, Omri Abramov, Oscar Andreas Haug on trumpet, Moshe Elmakias on piano, and Andreas Svabo on double bass. We've also got a few guests as well. Eric Hegdo on clarinet and bass clarinet and baritone saxophone on a few tracks. And Kyrie Lastad on tambourine on tracks one and eight. And this is also produced by Shlomo. Let's take a look at the tunes we've got here, starting out with a very upbeat number. It's all right now. Well, this one, the bass and left-hand piano started out with four measures of a very infectious syncopated ostinato figure. And Shlomo joins in on drums, and Almachius adds some rhythmic chords as they go around another eight measures. Then the horns come in on a legato and lifting, harmonized melody line with the same static harmony as the ostinato until it changes up in the ninth measure. It's a 16-measure segment with the last few left open for the ostinato to groove on before a repeat. Listen to Shlomo's subtle skittering fills around the kit underneath, then the horns have a pickup line into an eight measure kind of bridge section the first half has some harmonic twists and then back to the home chord and the ostinato again almachia solos first starting out with rhythmic chord ideas and some ringing modal tensions shlomo really gets the subdivided beat going really busy underneath and almachia gets more and more animated the horns come in with the line into the bridge section as backing to the end of the solo abramov solos next on sax starting with some cool interval ideas in his phrases and gaining steam into faster lines rhythmic phrases and some intense kind of pharaoh sanders evoking squawks uh, after the finishing bridge section, they go around the intro ostinato for eight measures again before a repeat of the melody sections, and then they vamp out on the ostinato section with added syncopated horn backing lines, and here Shlomo gets to mix things up tightly around the kit to a final slight slowdown. It's a tune with a good groove and a real positive vibe to get the recording going. The second track is Across the Ocean. It's an intense start here with a flurry of horn pickup lines into a forward-pressing line of syncopated modal melody phrases. Shlomo has fast stick work 
dancing around the drums and cymbals underneath. There's a first section of 16 measures with piano chords under the horns that finishes with a cymbal flourish, then a longer, different section of 24 measures that I think is the same pattern twice, but it starts out quieter and then builds in intensity the next time around. Finally, another eight measures of the original section, chords, and melody pattern. Almachius is up for a piano solo first. This is really cool. He starts out with snappy rhythmic figures with sudden gaps and stops by the rhythm section, and then he works into speedy skittering lines. Shlomo gets the cymbals really dancing, and Almachius works it up into a climax of rhythmic left-hand chords and chiming right-hand figures. The horns return with the 24-measure section as backing for Elmachius to do some intense, final, speedy, ripping two-hand lines. Then things come down softly with bass pulses from Svabo and clicky textures from Shlomo. And next, Abramov gets uh, started on a sax solo. He works from wistful and fluttery, longer connected, intense phrases as they rhythm section kind of works things back to full force. Then Hogg works the 24-measure backing line alone on trumpet as Abramov honks out intense speedy lines before joining him at the end. Then they work through the melody sections again. This time, Elmachius adds some interesting piano flourishes and fills with some various horn articulations on the middle section and an extended final section to end it up. Track three is called Song for Jonathan, and this one's a longing minor 3-4 ballad. Svabo and Elmachius started out sparsely with ringing bass and piano chords for 16 measures, and Shlomo joins in with subtle brushwork and cymbal textures. Elmachius keeps the melody delicate, gradually working into longer phrases, and then improvised lines with a nice sense of touch as the horns join in with soft legato backing lines. It reaches a hold with the horns, and Elmachius continues on solo on piano with a soft arpeggiated left hand backing to his slowing delicate right hand lines. So it's a subtle and pretty piece, I thought. Hmm. Track four is country song. Well, Elmachius starts this one with rubato solo piano. It goes from a major sounding folk tune to minor and then a modal shift, kind of ushering in the busy subdivided beat of Shlomo and ringing bass of Svabo. Almachius adds ringing piano fills as the horns let us know, well, you're not in Kansas anymore. With <laughs> soft, sure too. <laughs> fluffy Middle Eastern modal figures before joining together on a slow wafting melody line. Eric Hegnow is joining in on clarinet with the sax and trumpet on this one. I'm not sure how you would uh, count this meter, but it's an interesting juxtaposition of lazily flowing horn lines over the busy drumming and bass pulses. Uh, at around three minutes, there's a modal change, lifting the melody line, and Shlomo switching to more tom-centered figures before the beat falls away and the horns drift down in their lines to a restarting of the tempo. It's sparser now for the start of a clarinet solo from Hegdel. He works up to a wailing high lines with the trumpet and sax joining in with improvised lines around his. And we get the modal change again and the horns come together on a line that leads to a final reset into the original rhythm and mode. Uh, horn burbles and growls decorate with piano figures uh, to a fading away ending. Track five is called A New Day. And this tune has a six eight feel in Shlomo's cymbals, there's a soft swinging trumpet line melody with a sax counterline, and there are two contrasting eight-measure sections that are repeated and build up. 
Hogg comes out of that for his first trumpet solo, uh, starting with a soft and fluffy tone. He leaves lots of spaces between his phrases, working up into more intense climbing lines over the rhythmic piano of Elmachius. Things quiet down for a deep-toned bass solo from Svabo. He keeps it rhythmic and punchy, too, and they finish it up with a run through the melody sections again and a slowdown for a nice alternated horn line and a final repeat of that figure underneath in the bass and piano. Track six, we'll get something more traditional. Uh, let's see, we, we usually can mispronounce all other languages, so let's try our Hebrew here. Deror uh, Ikra, I believe okay. it's pronounced, which is a uh, Jewish religious song or hymn. Uh, I guess it's traditionally sung at Sabbath meals. And Hug starts out the haunting melody cry solo on the trumpet with soft articulation and some interesting pitch bending into the final note. Shlomo adds a beat, and the trumpet continues on more rhythmically before being joined in unison by Abramov's sax. It continues through different sections of rhythmic feels and meters, with the horns splitting off into exchanges and close interplay. There's a cool syncopated bass and piano line section that the horns continue over into a more steady driving beat subdivided by Shlomo's cymbals for Abramov to solo over. Haug joins in with backing lines before they come together on those lines to a hold, and the drums drop out and the horns continue on with a delicate line with the piano over a bass line. Shlomo joins back in gradually building the line to a climax, and it continues on with a clicky beat and a bass pulse for improvised piano from Elmachius that builds in rhythmic urgency. They get a tight groove working under his speedy lines as the horns return with backing lines, and the syncopated bass and piano section we heard previously returns for Shlomo to work up some intense drum ideas around the kit. Uh, the horns add in again as it builds into a reprise of the rhythmic theme from the beginning when the bass and piano first joined in, and that goes to a final hold. Track 7 is You and Me. It's a delicate piano melody over low-bowed bass notes and light tom work from Shlomo that make an intro for Hegdel to return, this time on bass clarinet with the melody. It flows like slow breathing, and Elmachius moves to adding lovely piano trickles and rolling waves of sound. The low register of the bass clarinet and the bowed bass together make a real warm, glowing mm. swell of sound. Mm. Svavo switches uh, to plucking then as Hegdel moves to more improvised lines. It stays rubato, but with more forward sense of motion with cymbal decoration and accented bass movement in spots. Back to bowed bass and deep breathy bass clarinet for the final slow melody line that will have your chest and room resonating with the deep sound. It's very luxurious in tone and quite pretty. Mm. And the album ends up with an alternate take of It's All Right Now, the opening track. Now the feel is the same, but in here you're going to add uh, Hegdel's baritone sax under the horns for some extra thickness in the lines. And then he also gets the first solo, and Hogg gets a trumpet solo on this version with some nice kind of Lee Morgan-esque bluesy licks and half-valve work as well. And then Abramov has an energetic but more tame solo in this track compared to the original, and Elmachius has the last solo. So it's worth checking out this uh, alternate take. And that's it. Anyway, I found this to be an engaging recording. Shlomo's compositions have good melodies. They express a lot of different moods, from joy to yearning. And he mixes in his uh, Israeli cultural heritage with interesting modal melodies and 
cool harmonic ideas. As a drummer, he's got a lot of finesse with different cymbal textures, subdivisions, and attention to the tone of his drums around the kit. There are a lot of complex things going on, uh, like in uh, Drawer Ikra, that drummers should definitely check out. And Almakias and Abramov impressed me a lot with the intensity of their solos. Hulk's trumpet playing was enjoyable, and I liked the soft tone and articulation that he uses. And Hegdal's clarinet and bass clarinet added another extra dimension to the tunes that he's on. And we've heard a few uh, Israeli jazz musicians incorporating some of their cultural ideas and musical background in, and uh, I'm, I'm kind of intrigued. And so uh, I want to hear more of things like this, and definitely I thought uh, Shalom was a tasty drummer. Yeah. It's really quite a mixture of approaches on this album. There were some uh, breezy and comfortable tunes, like It's All Right Now. Mm. And then some were mildly disturbing, like Country Song. I mean, that <laughs> title really uh, kind of had me expecting something completely different. <laughs> uh, and some gentle and moving tracks, too, like Song for Jonathan and You and Me, the title track. The album doesn't have a single character, and soloists adapt show a lot of range. And I especially like the uh, the baritone sax you know, whenever I heard it, of yeah. course, we always do. It's He plays sensitively on this album, the Barry Sachs, and the piano was appealing to me throughout as well. And so was really everyone else, but those were the two I my ear kept going back to. Mm. It was an interesting listen, and really each track surprised me. Mm, good. Yeah, we heard um, last year the debut of uh, Israeli pianist Nadav Berkovitz right and, uh, he's got that. a new album coming out uh, this month so okay we, I really liked out. that one so yeah that was really interesting here. yeah yeah all right we're gonna uh, hop on over to the UK again we were there last week and uh, another Ubuntu recording and this time from drummer Tristan Banks with his view from above this came out March 31st and Banks is a UK drummer composer and producer He's got more than 30 years of experience as a sideman for many Grammy award-winning and uh, platinum-selling artists. He's got influences from jazz, Latin jazz, and fusion music. And he's uh, recorded with a lot of people. David Gilmore, Roy Ayers, Robert Miles, Ben Hillier, uh, who's a songwriter and producer for U2 and Depeche Mode. And he's also recorded with Marcos Valle. So he's got a a wide uh, range of styles in his background and here he's on drums with additional percussion and all the compositions we've got uh, Paul Booth on woodwinds that includes tenor sax soprano sax flute and bass clarinet and John Crawford on piano Davide Mantovani on acoustic mm. and electric bass well some of these uh, tunes have multiple tracks on them which will allow for uh, this to sound larger than the personnel. Uh, starting with the first track, Above, which opens with Booth's bass clarinet, bass and left-hand piano working a thick syncopated line over the tight drum groove from Banks and uh, offset punctuations on right-hand piano chords from Crawford. The next section has Booth's tenor sax and piano taking a melody line over throbbing electric bass pulses from Mantovani. 
then a rhythmic riffing section starting with tenor and then switching to bass clarinet locked in with the rhythm section that becomes the bass for a tenor solo on top from Booth. Uh, it changes up to the more throbbing bass pulse feel with chord changes and then a pressing samba feel rather as the sax solos on. There's a nice full tone and rhythmic snappy lines from Booth. Uh, back to the throbbing pulse for a solo from Crawford on piano, and that also goes through that samba feel section. Uh, the synchronized rhythm section and bass clarinet section comes back from before the tenor sax solo to bring it to an end. Track two, mm. Ex Machina. And this opens with a section of tricky rhythmic phrases under long rising tenor sax lines answered by piano and bass. There's furious drum fills from Banks under it all. It feels like it's grouped into beats of three and five, three and five, three and five, and then three mm. and four. Uh, it's kind of a, a little section that you're going to hear return throughout the song, marking off different sections. The next section is a super funky groove. Interestingly, uh, here, on most of this album, we're going to hear acoustic bass doing all of this really funky playing. Uh, and it's here with piano chords uh, locked in tightly. Banks lays it down with a tight hi-hat groove for Booth's clipped funky sax line that moves into a unison line with the piano. We hear the intro section idea again, and next just a drum beat with more metallic clang this time for Booth to get some honky tenor soloing started before the piano and bass return. Booth keeps soloing over that opening pattern again, and then there's a new section with piano chords on the beat uh, to some syncopated piano and sax lines that go around a few times with Banks mixing it up around the drum kit underneath. Once more around the intro section, and then again with Booth bursting out for some searing improv into high lines before it ends. Track 3 is called Flex in parentheses for Dexter. A super busy subdivided Latin beat tune. Bass and piano started out over the complex drum beat with unison lines for a four bar intro. Booth adds a sax line with a repeated figure that starts in tricky places in the rhythm. There are more sections with syncopated rhythmic sax lines into interplay with the piano and then Booth and Crawford have some intense piano and sax solo interchanges. Montavani is on acoustic bass here and it really rings out under some soloing from Crawford. Booth gets more sax solo space too before a break for some solo piano rhythmic figures that build up the tension to a repeat of the melody sections to a slowdown at the end. Track four is called Possible Bossa. Hmm, <laughs> well, interesting title. Ringing piano over Banks' cymbals and tom fills for an intro. Here too, it's felt as alternating measures of three and five. Uh, four times and until Booth comes in on the breezy melody on tenor. And then it's kind of a heavy bossa, but there's that familiar click that Banks adds and a nice throbbing acoustic bass from Montavani. It seems to be a 16-measure melody that they go around twice with a couple final measure repeats. And then it feels like it will pause, but it continues on right in tempo for Booth to solo. He's fluid with some chirpy excitement early on, tying back straight into the melody. Nice rhythmic piano chords and fills underneath from Crawford uh, all the way through this tune. Track five is called Dust Devil. And I've got a completely new complex drum groove here with tricky bass and left-hand piano figures and right-hand syncopated chord figures for an intro section. 
Booth switches to soprano sax for this tune. It's got an airy melody with dreamy chord changes that have a nice lift in the ninth measure of the melody. There are tricky sections of accented syncopated rhythmic figures. Booth has a snaky and fluid solo. Uh, has a really good tone even in the high register of the soprano sax. And after Booth's solo, the piano and bass vamp out on a syncopated section for Banks to work up an intense extended drum solo. Uh, and then Booth returns with some melody to finish it off. Track six is called Flutter, and Montavani switches to electric bass for this one. Booth stays on the soprano sax. Uh, the intro starts with that three and five alternating feel idea we've heard before, with a medium Latin beat with extra hand percussion in here. Uh, Booth starts the sax melody over that, that uh, has phrases scooping up into a higher note. Suddenly it switches to a super funky fast groove with Montavani popping out 16th note bass lines. Uh, sax and bass get a cool unison line together before it shifts back to the earlier feel and then bass and piano start another unison funky line joined by sax before Booth gets a solo with some high cries and swirling lines. Uh, there's a reset to a shortened version of the intro idea and melody line to a soft ending. Track seven is Capelinas, and Booth switches to flute for this tune. Uh, the intro has descending rhythmic flute and piano lines over drums, and then the main melody takes on a samba feel, except everything is in seven beats. Mm. <laughs> and in place of that usual mm, kind of samba bass pulse, Montavani, who's back on acoustic bass, has really cool snapping, rising bass figures in this meter. Uh, there's lots of interplay between piano and flute and nice rhythmic piano and fills from Crawford. The intro section returns into a solo from Crawford with exciting rhythmic ideas and punchy left-hand chords. More of the intro section into the melody again, and more of the intro idea for a vamp for Banks to get some tight drum soloing with some machine gun-like snare and tom work as Booth takes the flute line up an octave to the end. Track 8, Polycephaly. It's a medium Latin six-beat rhythm uh, for this tune with a flowing soprano sax melody from Booth. Banks gets some fills under a section of syncopated piano chords before the sax returns. Uh, the beat gets mixed up into something more syncopated and funky with throbbing acoustic bass for a soprano solo from Booth. He gets intense with speedy, kind of David Liebman-esque searing lines in the soprano sax. Back to the earlier feel for a piano solo from Crawford with a lot of good rhythmic variety and percussive chords, and Booth returns for a final melody section with the sax to finish it out. Track 9, Cidade Alta, and Banks starts it out with a cool deep tom and click drum groove. Montavani adds a pulsing bass, and Crawford chiming in rhythmic chords. Booth is back on flute for the melody, and has a kind of samba press to the feel of the rhythm, but the rhythms and bass pulse are quite unique. Uh, Booth has a fluttery and flighty flute solo with piercing high register notes and some breathy edge in spots. Crawford has an interesting piano solo that starts kind of skittering and then gets some impressive rhythmic two-hand synchronized figures and percussive chord playing. Booth returns with more flute melody and some forceful flutters for a finish. And we're going to end up with Tempesta. And piano and bass work tricky syncopated figures over light and tight tom beats from Banks. Booth is back on tenor here, laying a sax melody line on top of the busy rhythmic mix that has little rising figures to it. 
Crawford gets more complex Cuban rhythms going in the mix on piano too, and things seem just like they're ready to burst when it segues into a more steady beat from Banks with Crawford's piano. Uh, But there's a tricky skip in that beat uh, that's really interesting, and soon things are off running again with some intense rhythmic acoustic bass from Mantovani and a light and tight groove from Banks for a piano solo from Crawford. Uh, The tricky skip transition beat leads to a speedy solo from Booth, and Banks gets his turn as well, working a solo around figures marked out by bass and piano, and then Booth is back for another run through the melody sections on sax to the end. So there's lots of exciting rhythms on this recording to discover. Banks is both precise and powerful at the drum set. He's a master of switching up grooves throughout a tune without there being any seams there. Uh, His original tunes are Latin-inspired, but with their own kind of unique rhythmic elements and feels. And Montovani really impresses on bass here, doing most of this really uh, speedy rhythmic work on the big acoustic bass, uh, which surprised me. But he keeps up with the furious grooves uh, on the big instrument. Excellent rhythmic playing and solos by Crawford. And Booth has muscular tenor playing, nice toned soprano, and he even breaks out the bass clarinet and flute, sounding confident on them all. And he's up for all these challenging rhythmic landscapes to play over. It's high energy stuff. I recommend you check it out if you like Latin jazz or are a fan of great drumming or a drummer yourself. You want to uh, see what's going on with all these grooves on this recording. Yeah, Banks, I, I found on this album, Banks is a really busy drummer. He's constantly like hammering something out. And what caught my overall ear was uh, the very melodic and appealing solo lines by all the musicians over these complicated rhythmic patterns. It was like a real contrast. It kind of put me back into that Kurt Vile recording we heard earlier where these juxtaposed things were happening. It was an interesting contrast. And yeah, the drumming is busy uh, with all sorts of toms coming in unlikely places in the rhythm. It was pretty (laughs) interesting the way he, his whole sort of concept of how to... Mm put that rhythm across it sounds like the rhythm might suddenly take an unexpected direction and sometimes it does Uh, the drums are busy throughout occasionally they lay down some straightforward funky grooves which was very cool and the sax gets a lot of time as well navigating the rhythm nicely so i enjoyed the sax playing drums step out to solo under ostinato patterns often in the melodic instruments it's a very energetic album i thought yeah yeah high energy I can see why uh, he would be a first call guy if you needed a, a drummer for your project. Uh, yeah, if you want, if you want one in the spotlight, because he does really stand out. You know, you're mm. kind of listening to him a lot of the time. Really cool album, and uh, even the melodies yeah. have like really tricky rhythms. You know, right. I was listening to the, the where a lot of like the sax lines start. You know, in the right, figures, right. and I'm like, oh boy, <laughs> these are kind of tough melodies to uh, hmm. work out. But uh, yeah, it's very interesting. Lots of cool rhythms and high energy. Right. All right, and the last recording is from Finland with the drummer Juho Petoniemi in his trio, and this is on Eclipse Music, and it's called Dust Dancing, and uh, this came out April 14th, and I was uh, glad this one caught my eye. I caught the name of Alexis Liuko, uh, who, I think it was in our last episode, yeah, 93, uh, Subtle Sonics, we actually took the title from part of his album title, Mm -hmm. uh, The Sonic Sessions, which was also on Eclipse Music that came out in uh, December 
with uh, Alexis Yuko's own trio. And this was one of my uh, best of the year picks that uh, came in in the last episode, just because I was knocked out by the piano playing and the cool rhythmic content on that recording. And uh, actually, I wrote to uh, Alexis that he didn't uh, uh, notice for a while, and he kind of replied to me. And uh, I think we had said uh, one of his tunes... It sounded like Vince Guaraldi on acid or something. Oh, man. <laughs> he, he thought that was pretty funny. Uh, but that's what the tune kind of reminded me of. And so yeah, I thought, yeah. well, with his uh, kind of rhythmic concept and then with uh, Peto Niemi's uh, drumming as a leader, I was, uh, you know, had high expectations for this recording. And I wasn't disappointed. Uh, this one's really interesting as well. Mm, I thought so, so too. Yeah. yeah. So we've got Yuho Peto Niemi on drums in all compositions. Here, Yuho... Kivi Vuori on bass, Alexis Liuko on piano, and we've got uh, guest trumpeter on several tracks, Marty Vesala. So it's going to make for an interesting mix of tunes. We're going to start out with the title track, Dust Dancing. This is an uplifting and bright sounding tune. It seems to have three sections to the sparse melody, an eight measure 5-8 opening. Next, a melody line that a section for 16 measures that seems to have some measures of 6-8 meter mixed into it. <laughs> then a contrasting and more chordal section of around 10 measures in 6-8, but it seems like there's one measure in 9-8 in there, so <laughs> you can try to count it for yourself. Anyway, they go around that pattern twice. Patoniemi's symbols are light and clear, marking out the time, and Lyuko is snappy and rhythmic and Kivavori drives it along with solid, snappy bass figures, and he continues on with a bass solo, rhythmic and ringing, and Ryuko follows with snappy piano solo that has speedy lines that change directions really quickly with some punctuated and chiming chords, and then a climax of rolling chord figures. They go around that melody pattern again with some final phrase repeats to some ringing piano and cymbals to close it out. Track two is called Avanto, and Lyuko gets it started with the repeated middle C note that will become a pedal tone uh, for some ominous sounding hmm. six note left hand piano and bass lines that pop in and out. Petoniemi has some soft ghostly cymbal tones behind that. There's a big drum roll that brings in a new section with ringing bass line and some piano lines around that still repeating C note. Uh, the piano and bass work a phrase together to a hold where that C finally stops. And then the six note bass and piano line idea we heard before come on their own with drum fills from Petoniemi in between. And a new slow four beat rhythm emerges in a ringing bass melody and very light cymbals with chords from Lyuko. Lyuko takes over with ringing high melodies. Uh, these phrases are sometimes broken up with syncopated chord sequences. It's airy and spacious. The C pedal tone repeating note returns with the bass lines from before into a final section of ringing bass and soft piano to a dark final chord. Track 3 is called Form, and here Petoniemi gets a light but finely textured drum groove going, and Kivivori adds a funky bass ostinato to that. It's in a cool 7-beat meter. And then on this tune, Marty Vasala joins in on trumpet with Lyuko on the modal kind of melody line that starts sparse with sections for piano fills, but builds up with interesting interval jumps in the lines. 
Vasali gets a trumpet solo then, and he starts it out relaxed with lots of space between his phrases, weaving snappy lines over the tricky meter, going from fluffy toned to bright and clear lines. Luko solos next. He starts with some playful dissonances and rhythmic figures. Uh, really good interaction with Kivavori's bass there, too. They go through the unique melody section again with some final soft trumpet from Vasala over light and bouncy piano from Luko. Track four is called Breeze. It starts with a 16-bar intro with a dark minor mood. Kivavori has improvised bass lines over Lyoko's ringing chords and faint cymbals marking out the 3-4 meter from Petromiani. Kivavori continues taking a round of the 16-measure melody that turns more optimistic sounding. There's an extra measure before Lyoko has a melody round continuing on for a solo. And check out uh, the varied articulations between rhythmic figures and smooth flowing lines and ringing chords. Uh, he brings it back down soft for Kivavodi to solo, and he has nice melodic ideas, keeping a rhythmic snap over the super light drumming of Petoniemi. Uh, he ties it back into the melody phrase, passing it off to Lyoko to finish up the melody with some interesting ringing final harmonies. Track 5, Mayaka, I think. Uh, Hmm. Peto starts it out with some tight kind of muted and clicky drumming. He really pays attention to the drum tone. Luko joins in with a left-hand five-beat ostinato figure, adding syncopated 24-measure melody of chords on top. Kivivori joins in with the static ostinato kind of thing for eight bars, and the sound thickens up, but then it gets lighter for Lyuko to free himself from the ostinato and get to improvising. Nice floating groove and fills from Petoniemi underneath, and watch for the shifts in the rhythmic feel before it resets to the five-beat ostinato for some more fleet soloing from Lyuko. It's an interesting solo of flowing lines, chiming chords, and changing rhythmic figures. Kivivori brings the ostinato back for Petoniemi to do some drum soloing tightly around the kit with splashing cymbals before Lyuko brings back the melody softly and he works it up into more rhythmically intense lines before final soft repeated rhythmic figures to end it. I was really interested in this one and the the piano solo. He gets like this really muted sound, like he's got the una corda pedal down. You don't really hear that so often in jazz. I was kind of interested. I'm wondering if if that is how he got that effect or if his touch is really just that light. Maybe he'll let us know. Yeah, some really interesting variations and tones in his playing. Right. Track six is called So Much to Say. And Lyuko starts it out solo with three chord figures that will mark out things to come in the tune and soft phrases. Kivivori joins in on the figure the next time, uh, which brings in Vasala back on the trumpet for the melody. Petoniemi comes in last with cymbals marking out the flowing waltz feel. It's a nice melody that builds up a lot of tension with thick chords before they kind of release into a more kind of familiar progression. Vasala continues on for our lyrical solo with smooth double-time lines and interval ideas along the way. And Lyoko solos next, getting some really ringing ideas, with Kivivori mixing a chugging walk with snappy bass figures underneath. Uh, they bring it back softer for Vasala to return for the final section to the end. Track 7 is called Time. Peltoniemi starts it out uh, solo on the drums. Bass and piano add 
sets of three syncopated chords building anticipation as he plays on through the intro. It's in four beats with a really nice chord progression. Petoniemi subdivides it on light and clear cymbals as uh, Lyuko plays the short rhythmic melody phrases answered by ringing bass lines that turn to more insistent rhythmic piano figures over the 12 measure melody phrase. That repeats and the next section modulates and gets more syncopated and then softer for 16 measures. Aliko continues on for a solo. He builds from rhythmic figures into more flowing lines as Kivivoti gets a furious walk going and it gets a great swing groove uh, fed with accents and fills from Petoniemi. The synergy here is one of the high points of the recording, I thought. The energy really just comes out in this tune. Uh, they bring it down a bit and tie it back to another run through the melody. And Liuko continues on from there with more improvised ideas into great chiming chords, trills, and more as it fades out. Uh, this is a great tune, uh, really exciting playing. If you're just going to check out one to get the uh, feel of this album, I'll start with this track. Hmm. Yeah, I'd say. Track seven, Hamilton. It's an eight-measure intro that sets the mood with a brush drum groove, throbbing bass ostinato, and minor modal chords and fills from Lyuko. Fasala is back on trumpet for the melody that has some cool harmonic twists and measures where the drums drop out for effect. And Vasala continues on for a solo lyrical and finding cool connections in his lines for all the interesting chords and mood changes. He keeps his phrasing rhythmic and snappy too, helped out by Kivavoti's grooving bass lines. And Lyuko solos next and he keeps that snappy rhythmic connection hmm. going uh, with some nice little uh, falls in his lines, lots of melodic ideas and ringing figures. And Vasala returns with more melody to finish out the tune. And track eight is... Track eight? Yeah. You're gonna, uh, this is the last track now? Oh, wait. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah. Time was seven and Hamilton was right. eight. There you go. And okay. My n auto numbering list is not uh, functional. Oh, I see. Yeah. yeah. So this is track nine. I was, I was going to say about track nine, if it was the right track, you're on your own with the pronunciation <laughs> of this one. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Vatsila, maybe? Maybe. Uh, yeah, that sounds do. okay. Yeah. It's a mysterious atmosphere here with, with something like a muted ringing cymbal and sparse dissonant piano notes that turn more impressionistic and pretty, ringing out into space. Uh, the piano lines roll with momentum in waves decorated by light drum textures to a hold midway. And then Lico starts again in tempo with rhythmic figures and chords. Kivivoti adds a ringing bass melody line as Petoniemi gets cymbals and a light beat going. Aliko keeps the left hand rhythms going and takes over the melody on the right hand as the bass gets cool answering lines and snappy phrases. It builds into big piano chords for a climax before a sudden soft ending. So more fresh sounding finished jazz. There's airy modal melodies, interesting meters. I really enjoyed this recording. Petoniemi has lots of detail in his drumming and he pays a lot of attention to the tone of his drums and cymbals. Kivivoti's bass gives a solid push and rings out on the melodies. And I enjoyed Vasala's trumpet tone and his soloing as well. It was nice to have a horn on some of the tunes. And again, I was just really impressed with uh, Lyuko's piano playing. Great rhythmic phrasing mixed with fluid, smooth lines and a, a varied sense of touch. And he can be very creative and keep this lyrical phrasing even over really odd meters uh, in the tunes. And so I was really glad that uh, I saw this one come out. And um, yeah, I can't wait to hear more from these guys. 
Yeah, I really like this album too. But I have to say, as with um, the Udi Shlomo album, I, I found this hard to summarize. I really didn't know yeah. what to say about it because there's a lot of variety on it. It's, it's sort of uh, hard to pin down, you know, what I what I want to say. It's very different than the Udi Shlomo record. It doesn't stick to one style, but shows the variety of approaches the band is capable of. And they go through quite a lot of them and very impressively too. Mm. I, th I found like Dust Dancing was kind of airy and then Avanto was kind of dark and foreboding. And uh, it brought up, uh, Avanto brought up emotions I associate with classical music. So I kind of took to that. There's a light, funky groove and form, which I really liked too. And it goes on really. Can, we can go through every track again. <laughs> the pianist and bass player are the standouts for me on this album. I kept wanting to hear the bass player. I was kind of really interested in the sound he was making mm. too. And it's the lines he came out with. They're given a lot of time in the solo space, especially the piano. He plays a lot when the solos are happening. I like the bass's speech-like phrases when he soloed and the variety of piano approaches too. Uh, there were a lot of them. And I also like the way the sudden changes of rhythm gave way to more spacious rhythm and harmony for the solos. And in time, the, the work you um, sort of recommended, I thought that happened. So that was um, yeah. a standout for me too. The handoffs between solos and are often pretty smooth, and I kind of smiled when I heard them. It's like mm. sort of like a perfect baton pass in a you know, relay race or something. It was really fantastic. Right. Uh, so much to say has an example of that. Okay, so I didn't think any of these albums came across as uh, traditional, like the ones we heard last week. It's like this is a complete contrast right. to the three jazz albums last week, which I really, really loved. But they all fit really well into the jazz tradition, and they're asking you to take on more than one style and right. i was invigorated this week by the jazz let's say you know yeah i mean there's lots of you know modern jazz that pushes mm -hmm. in strange ways yeah trying to be different but i felt like all of these are really kind of organically exploring yes, something agree. a yeah. little bit different and um yeah they weren't pushing but they were kind of more like demonstrating i thought yeah. i really liked it going from Luco's album last year i found his sense of rhythm was really you know, mm -hmm. unique. And so I thought, well, him with a drummer as a leader, that should be kind of more of the same. And it, it, he would be a pianist that I would think a drummer would really like to play with who's going to oh. have some odd meters. And I think it worked out really, really well here. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I'm wondering um, where this kind of rhythmic concept comes from, if it's an individual thing or if it's part of the environment uh, in in the way that jazz in Finland is developing or whatnot. Right. So I can keep my ear open to hear more ideas like that. So there you have it, all drummers and uh, a little bit of international scene. So we've spent uh, pretty much two weeks uh, outside of the U.S. with jazz. And so mm -hmm. uh, next week, I'm going to bring it all back home as you are in the classical world. Yeah, in classical music too. We've got three uh, American albums next week. All American composers, not all American you know, soloists or performers, but okay. uh, the, the music itself is American. So I wanted to get some, uh, I just, they're piling up. So I thought I, you know, we could do another American episode. So we'll have that next week. There's some pretty interesting releases actually. Okay. There's the new uh, Yu Wang album, the um, American Project with a work by uh, Teddy Abrams is the main work mm. on this okay and i'm kind of curious to hear that i haven't heard it yet okay and wang of course is one of the the, the, the big names the yeah. big piano names before the public now she's like a super virtuoso really incredible player mm. 
So I'm kind of interested to hear what's going to happen here. She takes on some pretty, uh, not just demanding, but um, you know, she she plays a lot of um, contemporary music, and I really mm. like that. I'm glad the pianists have gotten back to that. You know, yeah, yeah. You can't really have like just the string of pianists like playing Chopin all there you know, for like hundreds of years on end. It's going to drive us all crazy. Right. Although we still love that music, um, but uh, I'm curious to hear that. Well, I've got uh, all sax, oh wow, okay. all American, and all fresh April releases uh, next okay. week. Of course, it'll be uh, May May first when next week's episode comes out. But there'll be. Uh, Oh, oh wow. recent well, It's stuff. already May. I'm pulling yeah. behind on the uh, <laughs> classical records here. And uh, one of them's got our uh, one of our favorite guitarists there, Pasquale Grosso. Oh, okay. Too. So, all right. uh, anyway, if you want to know all those American classical and jazz uh, recordings for next week, I'll put up the playlist that'll be on Deezer and also a link to it on Facebook a few hours after this episode gets published. So if you want to get listening early. Please uh, be our guest and check out those recordings ahead of time. Otherwise, uh, we want to give thanks to Fast Signs of Staten Island for our glowing neon logo, as always. Hmm. And um, well, I think we've got a uh, guitar episode coming up in a couple weeks, too, don't we? I think we? two weeks. Yeah, I've two got weeks? that okay. stuff for two weeks. i got yeah. some good stuff on that one, too, in classical oh, cool. music. It's going to be nice. Yeah. Some contemporary works there, too. All right. And a Baroque one. I had to choose between the Baroque ones. I've got a few Baroque uh, guitar albums now. We'll have, to, we'll have to do two different guitar episodes. There's a okay. lot of solo guitar music and classical music coming out. Quite a few uh, interesting ones on the jazz list, too. So I could probably do two episodes, too. Well, okay. the last time well, we did... Just not back to back. <laughs> we'll spread them out. We had fall frets and summer strumming. <laughs> so... <laughs> what can we? Oh, fall frets. We have to go for spring something, I yeah. guess. Spring strings. I don't know. Spring like strings. That. I don't yeah. know. We'll see. All right. This has been episode 112 of Adult Music, and we'll see you next week with an all American episode for episode 113. So until then, keep listening, and we'll see you again next time. Gerald Albright, Maria Schneider, Charlie Hunter, Duke Robillard, Sean Jones, Walter Beasley, Steve Swallow. Something Came From Baltimore is a jazz, blues, and R&B podcast and radio show, and it's not really about Baltimore. Subscribe to the podcast and listen to your favorite artist or future favorite artist that Something Came From Baltimore and be a part of that Be More music scene. Joe Lovano, Jeff Coffin, Paula Cole, Denuso Makatani, Ann Passio, Chess Smith, Thumbscrew, mostly. Hi, jazz fans. This is the founder and host of Neon Jazz, Joe Domino. It's both a weekly radio show and interviews with musicians from all over the world, like the Netherlands, New York City, and back to Kansas City, the home of Neon Jazz, covering the rich history and modern world of jazz in a fresh way, featuring interviews with the likes of Arturo Sandoval, Sonny Rollins, Maria Schneider, and countless others. Find our weekly show on Mixcloud. Subscribe to the interviews via iTunes and YouTube. We are Neon Jazz. Same difference. Two jazz fans, one jazz standard. A review of a single jazz standard through music, history, and stories. And this is AJ. And this is Johnny. If you are a jazz fan and you like jazz standards, bebop, show tunes, ballads, you name it. Yeah, we've got them here. We drop a new show on you every other week, and we take a standard, and we listen to a few different versions of it. Same difference. Come join the fun. Looking forward to seeing you.